0: So, we continue this week by looking at who it is we are reaching. And in order to do that, we're going to take a closer look at Ephesians 2. Um, As I mentioned last week, understanding who people are and not simply what they do will help us to stay focused in trying to truly help them. And also, when we think about reaching those to whom we're witnessing, We not only want to look at who they are by nature, but to make sure we also help them to see who they can be by grace. Now, as the Lord would have it, in the passage that I'm looking at this morning, or at least part of it, is the same as what Pastor Jack will be preaching on this morning, and so all all I can conclude from that is that the Lord really wants us to hear what's being said here, especially in the first three verses of Ephesians 2, because that's where Pastor Jack is at uh, this morning. So this passage that we're going to look at also is a really good bridge between this lesson and next week's lesson, which is going to be what is the gospel plan. So if you've been tracking with us, we've been looking at what evangelism is, what it's not, who Jesus is who we are as the people of God, and who it is that we're reaching. So we've kind of laid that foundation now for the last eight weeks or so, and we'll conclude that this morning, and then we'll make a transition and talk specifically about the gospel plan. What is God's plan to redeem sinful mankind? And this this text that we're going to look at this morning really functions as a bridge between those two. Uh, One of the things that I'll really try to make sure we understand going into the next two weeks' lessons is the reality that people must understand the bad news, that they're under the wrath of God, before the good news will just become this diamond that they see and say, wow, look at what God has done in light of the situation that we are in. So we'll be looking at Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to that. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at three aspects of salvation from Ephesians 2. 1 through 10. Again, this will just kind of be a survey. Pastor Jack is going to be hitting on this far more in depth over the next several weeks. Uh, but I do want to just kind of lay a, lay a foundation with it this morning. So, the first aspect of our salvation, there on your notes, if, and if you don't have a note sheet, it's on the back table there. You can grab one of those, um, is the plight of our condition. The plight of our condition. And we see this in verses 1 through 3, which, which is a passage that we looked at. Uh, Just briefly, last week, let's go ahead and read Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. If somebody wouldn't mind reading that for us.
1: And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the cross of this world, following the prince of the power of the earth, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we have all once
2: lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest
0: of man. Okay, thanks, Larry. So we see there in verse 1, and what's very important for us, right at the beginning of what Paul is beginning to remind these believers of, and us. And that is how they have become the recipients of all these spiritual blessings that he referred to in chapter 1. And that's something that we must deeply consider because there's much confusion about how one comes to Christ. These, there are essentially three ways that human nature has been described throughout history. So you can just jot these down if you want to. But the first way is that we're basically okay. Okay. That's how some people have looked at humanity. Essentially, humanity is okay. People are generally good. Um, in medical terms, we're healthy. And that's, that's how we would look at that. Humanity is getting better. We're advancing. We're growing in our understanding. And Perhaps you've heard people talk about that. Look how much we've advanced, right? But when we look at it, we recognize we really haven't advanced at all. We may have advanced in some ways, technologically. But regarding the human nature, there hasn't been any advancement. Okay? So it doesn't take long to look around and if we're honest to realize that this view is completely irrational. Right? Humanity is not getting better. Okay? If you watch the news at all, each night, you know how true that is, right? It's really depressing just to watch the news. It's like, why am I watching this right before I go to bed, When right? <laughs> And you've got to reorient your mind <laughs> with the word of God before you can lay your head down and remember what God is doing. So that's the first way humanity is described. Second way would be that humanity is sick, uh, perhaps even mortally sick. However... The situation is not hopeless, this view would say. People are still alive and they're therefore they, they can be helped. Okay? They can take some medicine, so to speak, and get better. And so there's all these different things out there that try to help man improve. Okay? The psychological movement is really geared toward that. Right? Go see a psychologist and you can get better. But the third view of humanity is the biblical view, and that's what Paul is talking about here, and this is what it says, that humanity is dead. And as we looked at last week, Paul means dead in the spiritual sense. We see Jesus alluding to this actually in Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 60, if somebody can read that for us. As they were going along the road,
1: someone said to I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me go first, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Let the dead or let, or leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and
0: proclaim the kingdom of God. Okay. Notice verse sixty there. Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. Isn't that interesting? Okay. So he's speaking about death on two levels here. Okay? Leave the dead, those who are already dead in their sins, to bury their own dead, the physically, physically dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And so Jesus and Paul are saying the same thing that man is dead. Dead so far as relationship to God is concerned. Dead in his trespasses and sins. As we looked at last week, all who are born in Adam, which is everyone except Jesus, therefore the necessity of the virgin birth, are born spiritually dead. It's important to note here what it means to be spiritually dead to God, and it doesn't mean that there are no feelings toward God. In fact, there are many feelings toward God when man is spiritually dead, but those feelings are feelings of hatred and indifference toward God. Man, in his natural state, the scripture says, is an enemy of God. He hates God. He wants nothing to do with God, the true and living God, that is. Here's how Paul concludes it, right? So turn with me to Romans 3. If you're familiar with the first couple chapters of Romans, Paul is just laying out here from Romans 1, 18 through Romans, the beginning of Romans 3, where he's going to kind of come to the climax as he's talking about all of humanity. Right, He's talking about Gentiles, and then he talks about Jews. And then he brings it all together, and he says, here is the state of humanity. Let me see if I can describe this. And he takes all these Old Testament passages and just... Layers them out. He says, here's the assessment of mankind apart from God. Romans chapter 3. Let's start at verse 9 and read through verse 18. If somebody can read that for us.
1: What then? Are we Jews any better
2: off? No, not at all. For we've already started. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one sees God. All have turned aside, and together they become worthless, no one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive, the venom of past is under their lips. Their mouths full of curses and bitterness, their feet are swimming to shed blood, and their past are ruined and injured. In the way of peace they have not known, there is no fear of God.
0: Okay, so there's the assessment there. You notice what Robert read in verse 9. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, that's all of humanity, are under sin. Okay, so that's the assessment that is given regarding humanity. That is our state before God. And so we can see that the Bible speaks very soberly about our condition apart from Christ Paul is inspired here to use some extremely strong and vivid language to describe our depravity. And he supports this strong statement in verse 1 by showing that those who were spiritually dead were under the sway of the world, the devil, and the flesh. Look with me back in Ephesians chapter 2, and again in verse 2. The scripture says, in which, that is in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. When Paul speaks about the course of this world, he's speaking about the ways of the world, the values of this world, the system of, of this world. It's going along with the world's ideas and the the world's ideals. And we were walking in this world in that way before we came to Christ, and with it, rebellion against the true and living God. We were also, according to verse 2, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. John speaks about this in 1 John 5.19 when he says, The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So when we think about that, when we look at the totality of Scripture, we see that God in his sovereign wisdom has given Satan reign over this world system. And what the Scripture tells us is that we followed it. And at times, still follow it. That's why our minds are being renewed. Right? Not many of us, I, I don't think, right, would say that we were followers of Satan before we became Christians. Right? But that's how the Bible describes us, right? We typically think about it in the way, yeah, it wasn't like at you know some pagan sacrifices and everything like that, right? But here's what the scripture says: that, that clean-cut man, you were following Satan as much as this person over here who is slaying animals and Worshiping Satan in in that sense. The scripture makes very clear for us that we were followers of Satan before we became Christians.
2: And a slave.
0: And a slave to it, yeah, absolutely. Jesus said the same thing when he was talking to the religious leaders of the day. He said, You're of your father, the devil. What an indictment that would have that would have been. And What's amazing about the ways of Satan is the subtlety with which he works. The majority of people are going through their life and dabbling with a little sexual immorality here, a little dishonesty there. And the cry of the human heart is, but I'm not hurting anybody, Mm -hmm. right? And I'm not worse than most people. Look at the things that are going on around us, right? I'm not worse than those people, And we were just coasting along with the rest of the world, not killing anyone, not doing anything, quote-unquote, really sinful. And the reality of that is what Scripture says, that we were blind to our own depravity. And this is why Jesus says here, the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. That's the declaration that Jesus gives to us. As Paul continues on here, he takes the accusation that he's allayed against these Gentile Ephesians in verse 3 and says this, Among them, too, we all formerly lived. So he includes the Jews in with the Gentiles here to show, as he did in Romans 3, that bondage to sin is universal. There aren't any who are exempt from this. All of humanity is spiritually dead and is following Satan's ways and schemes. Not only that, but we were also following the lusts of our flesh and the desires of our minds. And Paul gives a list of this in Galatians 5, verses 19 through 21. If somebody can read that for us. Now
1: the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality purity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and
0: things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Okay. Notice that list, right? I mean, he just, and it's not exhaustive. You see other places in scripture, but but notice, like you read like sorcery. You're like, oh yeah, I'm not like, you know, I'm not worshiping, you know, I'm like not a witch or something like that or not like trying to call out demons and then in that same list you have fits of anger right so you've got this guy over here who's doing some really crazy things and you got this guy over here who's just kind of blowing up every now and then and Paul says same category
2: mm-hmm.
0: same category okay it's different fruit but it's all flowing forth from the same root mm-hmm. and so that's what we have to have to see here Right. We have to be careful of that we don't compartmentalize sin. Because yes. You
2: mentioned sorcery. Doesn't the Greek word for that actually have a corresponding meaning to um, what we would call drugs? Yes, yeah, Yes. pharmaceutical.
0: Pharmacia, right. Right. Um, exactly. So yeah. If
2: you stop whatever you worship is, is idolatry. Yes. And
0: then it ends up even if you're into drugging yourself, and the whole the whole right. of all of this is just total depravity. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Right? So we recognize different fruit, yes, but same root. Same root. Different fruit, same root. So as we look through these, we notice both external manifestations of sin and internal manifestations of sin being spoken of. And the reason for that, Jesus brings clarity to this in Mark chapter 7, verses 21 and 22. Notice what he says here. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. Okay? So Jesus said, here's the root, okay, out of the heart of men, and here's the fruit evil thoughts, fornications, and so on. Okay? So everything is there, and this is what it means to be dead in our trespasses and sins. Now, uh, uh, yeah, go ahead, George. Just the yep.
1: evil thoughts, because, you know, I think of another verse that says, uh, so is a man thinketh in his heart, so is mm-hmm. it the things I think about, yep. that's who I am.
0: That's correct. Yes, it reveals who you truly are. That's right. So, Paul finishes here in Ephesians 2, verse 3, by telling us what we were by nature, and that is... As he states it here, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. You know, I I don't know of a doctrine that is more offensive to the pride of man than the concept of original sin. Mm -hmm. Because of our union with Adam, we have inherited a sinful nature and are born in sin. And many will respond to that, many have responded to that, By saying, you're telling me that man, by nature, is born under the wrath of God. Mm. We're born with a propensity to hate God right from the womb. And how we have to answer that is, what does the Word of God teach? It doesn't matter what we think, right? What does the Word of God teach? Psalm 58, verse 3, the wicked, and the wicked there, when you look throughout Scripture... People apart from Christ, you're either wicked or you're righteous. We looked in Romans 3, none are righteous, therefore all are wicked. Okay? The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth speaking lies. Human nature itself testifies to this reality. Any of you with children? or have spent time around children watching them interact and scheme and connive, you understand this, right? You don't have to teach children to lie or steal or dishonor their father and mother. They do it by nature. Now, as you look at those first three verses there, and Pastor Jack's going to expound on that, so if you're not discouraged yet, just wait until we get into the service this morning. <laughs> but this is what we have portrayed for us by the scripture of a man that, that is living apart from God, dead, enemies of God, unable to do anything to merit favor with God, under the righteous wrath of an infinite holy God. If we were just to describe it in one word, we would say hopeless. But you have to see, we need to feel the weight of this. We need to feel the weight of who we are apart from God. We need to feel the weight of who we are by nature, what we deserve from God, His righteous wrath forever. Because once we grasp that, when we spend time meditating on that, what Paul is about to say next is going to blow us away. If you have a really small view of sin, when the gospel comes, you're going to be like, that was nice. It was nice of God to do that. But when you recognize, as the tax collector did before God, there's nothing in me. I can't even lift my eyes up. I'm a sinful man, Lord and then you hear this pronouncement over you, you are justified. That blows you away, and it radically changes your life. And it radically changes how you interact with other people. Let me conclude this section here, verses 1 through 3, by reading an excerpt for you from a very famous sermon of old by Jonathan Edwards. Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. If you've never read that sermon, I really want to encourage you to read that. It is a fantastic explanation of what man is apart from God and what we deserve from Him. So I'm just going to read an, an excerpt here. Edward says, The wrath of God is like great waters that are dammed for the present. They increase more and more and rise higher and higher till an outlet is given. And the longer the stream is stopped, the more rapid and mighty is its course when when once it is let loose. It is true that judgment against your evil work has not been executed up to this point. The floods of God's vengeance have been withheld. But your guilt in the meantime is constantly increasing. And you are every day treasuring up more wrath. The waters are continually rising and growing more and more mighty. And there is nothing but the mere pleasure of God that holds the waters back, that are unwilling to be stopped and press hard to go forward. If God should only withdraw his hand from the floodgate, it would immediately fly open and the fiery floods of the fierceness and wrath of God would rush forth with inconceivable fury and would come upon you with omnipotent power. And if your strength, For 10,000 times greater than it is, yes, 10,000 times greater than the strength of the stoutest, sturdiest devil in hell, it would be nothing to withstand or endure it. The bow of God's wrath is bent, and the arrow made ready on the string, and justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow, and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God, without any promise or obligation at all, that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. Wow. That's just an excerpt. When you grasp the reality of that, you come to this conjunction at the beginning of verse 4, and you stand amazed. But God... You know, the amazing reality of that analogy that Jonathan Edwards was trying to bring forth to show our plight is that the arrow of God's wrath that he spoke of, it was released. And it was plunged into the Son of God. And that brings us to the second aspect of our great salvation, which is the power of our salvation. I want you to look with me here at verses 4 through 6. This dismal picture of verses 1 through 3 was necessary to illustrate for us who we are by nature. And then watch how amazing this is. Verses 4 through 6. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. As we look at this section here, the first glorious reality that we notice is that God intervened. Otherwise, we would still be dead in our trespasses and sins, right? And the question that arises from this is, what compelled God to do this, to intervene on our hopeless situation? And we see from these verses that it was the mercy, love, and grace of God that brought us from that place of death unto this place of life. I want you to see what is being said here in in verse 4. Something wonderful is being said here about God's love. Look again here at verse 4, where Paul says, because of the great love with which he loved us. Why not just because he loved us? Or why not because of the love with which he loved us? What Paul includes here, is inspired to include here, because of the great love with which he loved us. He uses this this glorious adjective because he wants to magnify the greatness of this love that we have been given and from which mercy and grace flow to us. Love is the foundation of God's action in bringing us to himself. I mean, think about the reality of this. This is a love that has taken us from death to life. It's a love that's taken us from being an enemy of God To being a child of God. From a God-hating, Christ-belittling sinner to a lover of God whose passion is now to know him and to make him known. And I want to park here for a moment, and this is so important in evangelism. Listen, this text right here in Ephesians, you can just take this and bring this to somebody in evangelism. Help them to see in verses 1 through 3 the plight of their condition before a holy God but magnify the grace and the love and the mercy of God to them as well so that they see what it is that God has done. Oftentimes, I think we fail to think enough about the love that God has shown to us as his children. We've established, I hope clearly, that this love doesn't arise out of anything that is lovable within us, right? God's not looking at us and saying, oh, there's something that's worth loving right nothing in us compelled god to love us and paul reminds us of that again in verse 5 and is interesting he magnifies the love of god and then in verse 5 it's like just in case we've forgotten this when he said god loved us even when we were dead in our transgressions okay it says something very similar in romans 5 8 right But God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, right? A lot of people have the mindset that let me clean myself up a little bit and then I'll come to God. I'll make myself lovable so that he can love me, right? And the scripture is just in direct opposition to that, right? It's while you were yet sinners, while you were an enemy of God, that God displayed his love to you. That's what makes it so amazing, so magnificent. Paul says that this love that has come to us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, has made us alive together with Christ. What a a powerful love this is. It's Jesus' love for Lazarus. It's a picture of that, right? That scripture is amazing. When you go back and read in John chapter 11, you can just jot that down and go back and read that later. But it was love that kept Lazarus in the grave. Until, he said, Lazarus, come forth. And that's, that's the love that God has shown to us. It called us from death to life. And really, it's what, as we've been looking through chapter 1 in Ephesians, this is what Paul has been praying for, is that we would know this, that we would understand this love, this magnificent love that God has shown to us. This love that the, the power that raised Jesus from the dead physically is the same power that raised you from the dead spiritually. And it is the same one that will bring you up from the grave on the last day. And love is the driving force behind this. And so there's this, Paul is inspired to write it this way because he wants us to see how great this love is that God has given to us. Paul, I mean uh, John actually, is equally stunned by this love. In 1 John 3.1, can somebody read that for us? Okay, good. Now, what's great about this, when you dig into this verse a little bit, that word see, some of your translations may say behold. And the point there of behold is get your gaze fixed in on this. Lock your mind and your heart in on this reality. Behold, what kind of love the Father has given to us. What kind of love is this? That we should be called children of God. We we read here in Ephesians 2, we were children of wrath. And now we're children of God. That's amazing, right? And John's blown away by this, and he wants us to be blown away by this as well. He goes on a little bit later in this same epistle, 1 John 4.10, and he said, In this is love, not that we loved God. Right there, there was no response from God. Oh, I can see that you're starting to love me a little bit now. Now I'm going to love you. Right? No. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation, the wrath absorbing, the wrath exhausting substitute for our sins. That's what propitiation means. So we see As we look back in Ephesians 2, verse 5, that God's love is that powerful foundation for our union with Christ. And then we're reminded in verse 6 here that the power of God's love has also raised us up with him. Here's what the scriptures testify. If you're in Christ, you're a new creation. You're a new creation. You don't think the way you once did. You don't act the way you once did. You don't find pleasure in the things you once did. Rather, now your delight, you delight in those things that you once hated and found boring. Right? You just probably think about your own testimony, right? I like Growing up, I was like, I got to go to church again. Oh, mom, please. How boring. Let's go. Let's get this over with. Right? Read my Bible? What? Oh. Then you're born again. And now you're like, I can't let this down, man. Look at this. I can't believe what this says. Right? You want to go to church. You want to be with the people of God. You delight in the things that you once hated. What Scripture says here, you've been raised up with him. As Romans 6 says, to walk in newness of life. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Your desire now is to seek the things that are above where Christ is. Paul says in Philippians 3, as we've looked at a couple of times already, that our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await our Savior. This is the longing and the desire of the one who has been raised up with Christ. So just from a practical perspective, when we're talking to people about Christ, again, you can walk them through this. And helping them to see, like I like to help people to understand, if you're truly born again, here will be some signs of the new birth. You're gonna have a hunger for the word of God, you're gonna want to be with the people of God. Right? These are things that are just that's what the Holy Spirit does. He gives you a new heart, new desires. These are the things that you start doing, right? And so oftentimes when when I'm talking to people and I you know ask them, Are you born again? What does that mean? Tell me what born again means. So I'll just ask them, you know. Are you seeing evidences of that in your life, right? Because like, yeah, I asked Jesus into my heart, you know, 20 years ago. Yeah, how's that affected you? Not really. I mean, just I'm glad that he's mine and, right? Help them to see that. Don't let them be deceived. Help them to see what happens, how the scripture describes a person who is genuinely born again. They're a new creation. There is hunger and longing for the things of God. Furthermore, we've, we're told here by Paul that we've been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And I want to make just a few points here on this one. One is that when the scripture speaks of Christ being seated, it does so to show that he completed his work and is now ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father. Uh, so when Paul tells the Ephesians that they've been seated with Christ, he's telling them that they have been given this authority with Christ because of their union with Him to rule and reign as well to some degree at this point. So when Jesus gives this uh, charge to the apostles, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore. Now authority is given to you. Right? I'm giving you authority to bind things and loose things. And as you do that, heaven's in agreement as long as you're in accordance with the Word of God. So there's the authority that the people of God have now. It's a given authority. It's not an innate authority, right? But that's who we are. We're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. We're ambassadors now. Ambassadors have authority. They have authority based on the one who has sent them into this other country. And this is how we're described. So this would have been a very important point for the Ephesians to grasp because remember that the city of Ephesus was an extremely pagan city, where there were many false gods being worshipped, and for them to be told that they're serving this one true and living God was a powerful statement to their pluralistic theology. They needed to be reminded of this confidence that they have in Christ, who Paul described in uh, Ephesians 1 as being far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So there should be no timidity on our part as we bring this message. We have a word given to us from the king, and we go and proclaim that word. And that's where the power lies, is in that word. It's not in his representatives. We have nothing powerful in us, in and of ourselves, but because of who we've been indwelt by, the Holy Spirit, we're very powerful in that sense. It's amazing to think, right, that God would use this mouth to bring about a new birth and change somebody's eternity. Isn't that astounding? But it's nothing in me, right? Just I'm taking words that God has given and I'm proclaiming them. And as that happens, the Spirit of God takes it and he makes a new creation. That's amazing. And that's what we want to help people to to understand. So this concept of having been given the authority of Christ to be seated with him, it also means that our citizenship is in heaven. We've been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. He's laying forth this contrast that we saw in verses 1 through 3 with what what we now see in these verses that we've been looking at. He tells the Ephesians who they were and where they were. Notice that. Namely, dead in their sins and in this world. Now he contrasts that by telling them they've been made alive with Christ and are seated with him in the heavenly places. Listen, when you're a Christian, you begin to realize pretty quickly, that you're at odds with this world. And you feel like you don't belong here. And that this isn't your home. And the reality of that is, the reason that you feel that way is because it's not. You've been raised with Christ and you've been seated with him in the heavenly places. That is now your home where Christ is. And you're longing for it. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, I think. I don't know if I quoted it perfectly, so I wanted to quote it again. But C.S. Lewis once said, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And I think that really hits at the point of when you're born again, you have this craving, this longing to be somewhere else, and that is in the presence of Christ. Pastor yes.
2: the last time we greeted each other? In Maranatha.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's true. That should be our heartbeat, right? Mm-hmm. Come, Lord Jesus. Okay, so that's the heartbeat of the Christian because of what God has done for us in Christ. So just looking at those two that those two sections right there before we get into the next one. I hope you can see how you can just take six verses like this and you can bring them to people. You can say, hey, you know what? Would you be willing to to sit down with me for 15 minutes? Because I've taken a little bit longer to explain it, but you can summarize that fairly quickly. Would you be willing to sit down with me for 15 minutes and look at a passage of Scripture and see what it says about what it means to be human, separated from God and then given the hope that that is in Him? Okay, and we're going to take a look at that more in the next couple of weeks of different passages and how we can make sure that we're bringing people the people gospel. So we, we've taken a look at that, the plight of our condition. We've looked at the power of our, our salvation. And now this third aspect with the little bit of time that we have left here is the purpose of our salvation. Why has God done all of this? And then this kind of includes how he's done this as well. Okay? So really verses... 7 through 10, we have more of the purpose behind him doing it. And verses 8 and 9 really deal with how he has done it. Okay, so let's read verses 7 through 10. And and you'll notice verse 7 is a continuation of what was stated in verse 6. But this deals with purpose, okay? So he's done this. He's displayed this great love to us. He's raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Why has he done that? Notice verse 7. So that. Okay, so there's purpose to this. I've done this so that. Now notice this. In the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Jesus. And then Paul explains that grace in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This isn't your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So again, we come to that last question and it answers, or we come to that last section, and it answers for us why God has done all this, why he has intervened, why he's made us alive and raised us up and seated us together with Christ in the heavenly places. Why when we deserve nothing but wrath? Okay? Verses 1 through 3 are true. Why didn't he just leave us there? Children of wrath, wrath awaiting the coming wrath. Verse 7 blows you away, at least it ought to. God has done all of this to bring us into his presence forever to praise and behold the glory of his grace. Isn't that amazing? Verse 7, so that, here's the reason I've done all this, so that in the coming ages, I'm going to blow you away forever. (laughs) You're not going to get to heaven and be like, wow. And then after like five minutes, you're like, okay, that kind of wore off. There's perpetual awe for all of eternity. Stunned for all of eternity at what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. This grace doesn't have any limit. Notice what it says here. He's going to show us the immeasurable riches of grace. There's never going to be a point in glory where you say, oh, okay, now I get it. It's immeasurable You're just going to be like, really? All of this, and you just keep going and going and going.
2: No measuring tape.
0: No measuring tape. (laughs) That's right. There will never be one moment in eternity where you are not stunned by the grace of God that he has given you in Christ Jesus. That's hard to grasp right now because we're, 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 we hit these little mountaintops, right? We're, we're, We're stunned by the greatness of God. And then we feel the weakness of... It's like, why am I not perpetually in awe of what God has done? Why do I have these vacillating moments where sometimes my heart is just not like floored by the grace of God? Well, it's because you still have sin fighting against you. But one day that's going to all be done away with and you'll know nothing but being stunned by the grace of God. John 17... In Jesus, what's known as Jesus' high priestly prayer. Jesus gets at the heart of why. Why he's praying for us and what he's bringing us to. Notice this. This is the desire of the Son of God. Father, I desire that they, which when you look back, you'll see it was the original apostles and disciples. And also all who would believe in their word. And that's us. I desire that they also, so all believers, whom you have given me, be with me where I am. Jesus desires that you be with him where he is. Does that not floor you? It's like, really? You want me there? (laughs) Do you know me? Yes. And you know me better than I know myself. You may be with me where I am. And notice this. Here's that so that, again. Here's the purpose clause. So that they may see my glory which you have given me. Isn't that a great statement? I'm going to blow you away with my glory for all of eternity. And I want you with me where I am. That's astounding. Listen, the most loving thing that God can do for us is to bring us into his presence to behold his glory forever. This is amazing when you think about the display of grace and kindness that is given to us undeserving sinners who are so worthy of wrath. I reference this hymn over and over again, and those of you who have known me for more than a few months have probably heard me reference this hymn. How sweet and awful is the place. We sing it almost every time I preach, so. It, it, it blows me away. I love just thinking about what this hymn Talks about because it points forward to that great and glorious day that God has called us to. And so I've included a few excerpts from it because I believe that Isaac Watts, the writer of this hymn, really gets at the heart of what this is going to be like in in glory. He says this While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, and he's speaking there about the marriage supper of the Lamb in glory. Each of us cry with thankful tongues. Lord, why was I a guest?
2: Hmm.
0: Right? How? Look at this grace that's been given. How am I here? Right? Why was I made to hear your voice? You notice the humility there? I, I was made to hear the voice of God. Before the foundation of the world, I was marked out as one of the sheep of Christ. And at the given time, he said, hear and believe. Amazing. Why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? I was just looking out upon the masses of unbelievers, right? I was looking around and I was like, I can't believe that I've been given ears to hear. I love this. It was the same love that spread the feast, that sweetly drew us in. And basically what it's saying here, because if it wasn't, if God didn't do that, we still would have refused to taste and perished in our sin. It was the love of God that he displayed to us that drew us in to himself. Okay, So I think he really gets at the heart of what is being said here about the grace that has been given to us in Christ and what God has done for us and what he's bringing us toward. Now, back in verses 8 and 9, Paul picks up on a thought that he really left off on in verse 5. You notice the break here in verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins made us alive together, by grace you have been saved. And then he goes on and he continues to describe in verses 6 and 7 what this is all about. And then he picks back up that thought. For by grace you have been saved. He goes back to what he was saying in verse 5. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. We see that it is by grace, but the conduit or the channel by which that grace comes to us is faith. And faith in what? Faith in Christ Jesus. Faith in his perfect life. Substitutionary death and triumphant resurrection. And why can't we boast? Because this faith is not our own. How could it be? We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Paul says this in Philippians 1.29. It has been granted to you for Christ's sake to believe in him. Isn't that a great statement? It's been granted to you. It's a gift to believe. Your faith is a gift from God. You don't believe because you were smarter than everybody else who hears the gospel and rejects it. You believe God in his grace because he has granted you the ability to believe. And if he hadn't granted you the faith, you would still reject the gospel right now. That's the depth of our depravity. So this standing with God that you've been brought into, and all these glorious gospel blessings that Paul's laid out are not a result of your works. And we have got to drill that home when we're speaking with people. The tendency of the human heart is works-oriented. Even if somebody tells you they believe the gospel, don't take their word for it if you've just met them and you haven't been able to see their lives. Because there's many who mix the gospel with works. Hence Paul's letter to the Galatians. is all dealing with that. I'm, I'm, I'm shocked that you've departed from this from the sufficiency of the work of Christ, and now you're trying to add things to to the gospel. And that's the tendency of the human heart. The default mode of the human heart, said Martin Luther, is works. That's what we keep going back to. And even as believers, we struggle with that, right? We gotta keep reminding ourselves, it's Christ's work and Christ's work alone, right? Not looking at anything within me to find my acceptance with God. So all of this, is so that God would get all the glory in salvation. God makes it very clear, doesn't he? My glory I will not give to another. And salvation is of the Lord. Paul speaks to that in in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 through 31. We don't have time to read that. You can just jot that down and go back to that later. But essentially what it says is, look at your calling. Look at how you came to Christ. There was nothing in you. It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. So when we understand our depravity that Paul spoke of in verses 1 through 3, you, you know there's nothing I can do to earn favor with God. Right? All the ra- righteous acts that I did, quote unquote righteous acts that is, before I became a Christian, were tainted with sin. Titus 3.5 says this. He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. All right? And then we see in verse 10, and this is so important to help people to see when we're talking to them, that although we are saved by grace through faith apart from works, the faith that we have been given, listen, it will evidence itself as genuine through works. Hmm. We're not saved by works but we are saved for works. Okay, Which verse 10 says that God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We don't work for our salvation, we work because of our salvation. It's important to see here that God has not just reformed us and made us a little better than we were before, but rather, as verse 10 says, he has recreated us and made us a new person. Again, all this is the work of God. Right? Even the works that are spoken of in this verse, before you were a Christian, listen, you didn't have a desire to genuinely do things for God. Mm -hmm. You may have wanted to do some things in order to make yourself feel better and in order to try to make yourself presentable before God. But the motive for doing these things was not centered on the glory of God. You wanted, listen, let's be honest, we wanted the applause of men Mm
2: -hmm.
0: or the sense of accomplishment for ourselves. That we could lay our heads down on our pillow and say, look at that good deed that I did today. Surely God will find me acceptable. But now, when God gives you a new heart, now you desire to work for the Lord so that God might be glorified. I want people to see the greatness of who God is. You help your brothers and sisters in Christ. You help your neighbors. You do all of these because you want God to be glorified. That's your aim now. That's your trajectory. And again, we don't do that perfectly, but that's what we desire Matthew 5, 16. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's the aim of our good works now. You want people to see that you have been riveted by yourself in the glory of God. And so... Again, we've seen the plight of our condition, the power of our salvation, the purpose of our salvation, and all of these, again, point to the greatness of God's grace. That's what Paul is seeking to magnify for us. But if you don't spend time, and we'll talk about this more next week, on verses one through three, verses four through 10 aren't going to make sense to people. They're not going to be blown away by the greatness of the gospel until they understand who they are before an infinitely holy God. And so we'll talk about that more next week as we. As we move forward. Amen. Amen. Okay. Any closing comments? Questions here? Got a couple minutes left.
1: Boyd. I remember years ago. uh, A fellow came into a Bible study. And uh, kind of had disagreements with our. Our. uh, Say Calvinistic. uh, Way of looking at salvation. Yeah. And uh, Pastor Rick. um, Really. Will. Yes him through John 3, 16, 17, and 18. Yeah. And uh, you know, he says everybody knows that passage. For God so loved the world, you know. but he says it doesn't make quite a bit of sense unless you go through 17 and 18. Yes. Um, you know, for the world is already condemned. Right. Yes. And uh, I've used that and it really is a great way to start the whole, well, what does he mean by condemned? And then yeah. He used these passages that show us Yep. Condemned before God already. Yes. Right. Um, but so that we can understand why God's beloved the world. Yes. Why
0: Christ? Amen. That's a good. That's a good passage. Because
1: sure. many people have heard already that God didn't come to condemn the world. Yeah. Like the Lord pointed out, they don't read the word because He came to show us we're condemned already. Right. He didn't come to condemn us. Yes. He said, "Look, you're already condemned." Yes. But the gift of God.
0: Yes. Yep. Yep. Yeah, Jesus comes into the world and he says, repent and believe the good news, which presupposes we're not believing the good news. Yeah, right. We're believing something else. And we need to repent of whatever it is that we're believing and believe that good news that he has brought. You, so, mentioned,
1: you mentioned the Lazarus, and I remember his sister telling Jesus, but, but by now he's stinketh, you know. Yes. And, and, and I think of the verse that says that our very best deeds... Or like
0: filthy
2: rags That's, him. Amen.
0: That's right. Yes. You too will perish. Yeah. amen Amen. right That's right, yeah. Amen. Amen. Absolutely. Good stuff. All right. Well, let's let's go ahead and close out and uh, be dismissed. Father, we thank you uh, just for this time to open your word as brothers and sisters in Christ to study, to, to hear from you. Uh, this is the word of the living God and how we praise you and thank you as we have heard in that hymn and we see in your word, more importantly, that we have been given ears to hear. The truth of your word. That we can look, Father, and we can say, yes, we are condemned in and of ourselves. And we can look to Christ and say he was condemned in our place. That we might be justified in your sight. Lord, please help our hearts to grasp the greatness of the gospel. That it might propel us forward in joyful good works and all things that your name would be honored. Grant us a great compassion for those around us as we see them as those who are dead in their sins, who are following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, that they're children of wrath, and that we have the one message, the only message that can liberate them from that bondage. And may we have compassion and boldness and love to bring it to them, whatever the cost, whatever the cost that in all things your name would be honored. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.